You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, what is up, all of our Liberty loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Our co-host Charlie is not here today, but I am sitting here with Professor Alexander Salter, who is an economics professor in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me back. We're just talking. Uh, we're excited to take our nice little holiday break coming up. Uh, it's been a really long few months, sounds like for you, myself as well. And uh, I, it feels nice, you know, just being on the cusp of taking a nice break, right? Absolutely. I could definitely use some time to put my feet up. <laughs> so uh, as I was saying before, you've got a few articles uh, that I read that I, I wanted to pick your brain on today. Um, I think I'll start with what I consider to be the most fun one is uh, one called To the Stars, Liberty on the Final Frontier. And uh, I, I thought it would be cool to think about this. What would happen as we explore, as we expand into, into space? Um, I've even already heard people arguing about the, the moon. Uh, what happens as we go out into the stars? Um, you think that this would be a, a way that we can finally have liberty? Maybe we're not going to get it here, but we can get it elsewhere. I think that that's a possibility. One of the really interesting things about space is by international treaty, space is sort of a quasi-anarchic environment. No nation state is permitted to extend their territorial jurisdiction to the moon, the Mars, other celestial bodies. And so that means that the United States, when it planted its flag on the moon, didn't actually claim the moon as U.S. territory. In fact, that cannot be done. That's illegal under international law. But it's not clear. In fact, many space lawyers think that this does not preclude private parties from actually starting their own enterprises, their own associations, whether we're talking about commercial ventures like asteroid mining or permanent or semi-permanent habitats. And so given that uh, these treaties that existed from the mid to the later part of the 20th century existed largely to keep the space race under control between terrestrial nations, it had this inadvertent effect of creating a liberty frontier where I think human beings in the future might be able to go out and experiment with new communities and new ways of living. How do you think that would go uh, for our society? I'm trying to go, I'm trying to think about how that would go over on Twitter. Uh, you know, when Elon Musk announces like, oh yeah, we made it to the Mars and um, yeah, there's no, no U S government here. There's no, uh, no specific rules. I'm a, 
I'm an absolutist when it comes to there not being any rules here. And then, of course, he's got a whole bunch of rules that everyone has to follow. People getting kicked off the planet. Sorry, I'm going on way too long here. How do you think people would take this idea? It's interesting that a couple of years back, uh, Elon actually got into some hot water with the space crowd because buried in the term of a service contract for Starlink, his satellite internet, was a provision proclaiming Mars as a quote-unquote free planet free of any terrestrial government's jurisdiction. And so that got a lot of people very angry. They thought that he was setting himself up to be a interstellar robber baron to basically uh, colonize the surface of Mars and set himself up as like a a techno-corporate fife king or something like that. I don't think that anything that ominous is in our future. I think that private capital is by necessity going to play a lot of an important role in fostering these communities and getting these communities set up. When you have uh, individuals, citizens of nations A, B, C, and D living on Mars or the moon under the auspices of a corporation headquartered in country E, and the owners of that corporation are from you know a whole bunch of other different countries. Obviously, the legal arrangements are going to be quite complicated. So really, this is just a straightforward explication of the idea that we're going to have a competitive legal system for many of these inter, uh, interstellar slash outer space communities. Now, it's obviously going to be quite some time before a lot of this becomes technologically feasible, but it's never too early to get the basics of the legal regime right. And I think it's important that we at least make it clear, as many nation states today are in fact making it clear, that the provisions from the Outer Space Treaty from 1967, for example, do not preclude private acts of entrepreneurship and settlement in space. What do you think it says about uh, us as a people or our government to uh, already be upset with someone like Musk for declaring himself, uh, you know, calling him a robber baron, as if we've got any type of ownership over uh, the planet Mars or anywhere else Uh, Are we so, our government, uh, the United States government is so powerful that we've already extended its domain to anywhere that anyone reaches, you know, it's kind of a scary idea. I think of it as just the latest triumph of the talkers over the doers. You have people who specialize in sort of manipulating these procedural rules for their own benefit and who talk a big game about global governance, global justice. And then as soon as an entrepreneur actually wants to go out and try and shake things up a little bit, oh, no, 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 we can't have it done that way, right? Because we didn't approve of it. So I think this is just another case of largely credentialed people who are saying things that don't matter, trying to stop people who do. All right. Well, I really hope that this is a problem that we need to deal with uh, sometime in in my life. Maybe, maybe we will later on. Uh, I think we'll end up, I think we're closer to this being an issue on the moon, uh, maybe in the next decade or so. Uh, I wonder if there's going to be any fights over specific areas. I hope not, but that is generally how it goes when we go to settle new places. And so I, I don't know if I can assume it's going to be all that different. Um, we'll see. Now, I guess pivoting from this, because I could talk about this all day. I gave you a great TV show recommendation And I'm going to ask, next time we have you on here, I'm going to ask what your favorite episode of season one was. (laughs) I'll give you a a trivia question. giving me homework. Yes, there's going to be homework here. There's going to be a pop quiz next time you're on. Just so everyone listening knows, I've recommended to Alex that he watches a show called The Expanse, which is on Amazon. Amazing show. Uh, Everyone that is interested in space and all of this geopolitical stuff uh, when it comes to settling new planets and mining asteroids, uh, you should definitely watch it. All right. So we'll, we'll shift from this because I'm a, a little bit of a sci-fi nerd, so I'll have to force myself on the talking about... You're in good company. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, tell me about the CBDC thing. First off, I will admit, I have tried so hard to wrap my mind around how crypto works, how blockchain works, how all of this stuff works. 
Um, I just can't, haven't figured it out yet. I do know that I don't like the idea of the U.S. government having this because I don't want them to be able to track everything. Now, uh, you talk in this piece about Kevin Warsh, uh, who does say that it's only going to be for banks, you know, from the Federal Reserve to banks, but that's not how government programs go, right? It's almost never how government programs go. If you look at every major quote-unquote innovation in the financial system in U.S. history, there was always a case where it's only going to be temporary. When Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, it was only supposed to be temporary. Of course, in retrospect, it was the final severance of any link between the dollar and gold. This is just what governments do. Things come up that are either actual emergencies or things that they want you to think are an emergency that can exercise new powers, which they promise are going to be temporary. And then the real or imagined emergency ends. And sometimes they scale back, but they never, ever scale back all the way. And you're left with a permanently larger, more expansive government. And that's what I'm worried that we're going to see here in the case of CBDC. It doesn't actually have anything to do with crypto. It's basically a publicly issued digital dollar that would be issued by the central bank, by the Federal Reserve. And of course, there's this whole debate about whether it's going to be quote unquote retail, meaning individual households will be able to sign up for it, or whether it's going to be quote unquote wholesale, whether only large financial institutions will be able to sign up for it. I really think that if we can see the ground on wholesale, that it's eventually going to become retail, and that eventually beyond that is going to become mandatory for all intents and purposes. And doing that would give the government unprecedented control over the financial system. I would go so far as to say that this is a fundamentally un-American policy proposal and an un-American technological innovation that we should stay far away from if we value privacy and liberty. Now, how so? Uh, This does sound pretty serious. Um, What is it that they could do that would violate uh, all of our, our liberty, our privacy, all of that? First of all, every transaction that occurred through it would be visible by the government. So you'd basically have a financial panopticon every payments processing that they would have control over so they could choose to process payments or not process payments for political reasons. They don't like who you're sending money to, they could block that payment. They don't like who you're receiving money from, they could block that payment. Uh, They could also exploit it for purposes of social and economic control. Imagine that your central bank digital currency balances slowly started to deteriorate over time. So they're basically giving you a negative interest rate. Why would they do that? Because the technocrats want to incentivize consumption over investment to goose the economy. So all these reasons make CBDC a very bad idea, even under the most optimistic case, right? There are some theoretical benefits in terms of efficiency in the payment system, lowering the cost of transactions between major financial players. Those are real, but it's quite obvious to anybody who knows anything about how the federal government actually works that the costs massively exceed the benefits. Only if we were governed by angels would this be a good idea. But the fact that we're not governed by angels means that we should not want to touch this with a 10 and a half foot pole. No, thank you. Uh, you mentioned being governed by angels. I was already talking about Milton Friedman before that, or already thinking about Milton Friedman before that, and people like Thomas Sowell as well. And when you talk about making it more efficient, there are arguments. We can argue for efficiency. But when you look at the government as a tyranny or a authoritarian, do you really want to streamline the tyranny. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's uh, the way most people think about it, but that's how people should think about it, because that's what you could be doing is just streamlining that tyranny's efficiency, right? I think in this case, it wouldn't actually even become more efficient, right? When we're talking about using up fewer resources to keep the financial system working the way it should, 
if we implemented this proposal, there would actually probably need to be a lot more resources invested in private parties to hedge against risk against the federal government messing with them in ways that could otherwise be avoided if they didn't have their hand on the choke point of the financial system. So I, for one, would very much like to see Congress get involved and say, under no circumstances, Federal Reserve, will you do this without explicit congressional approval? And this is becoming worrying since the New York Federal Reserve has already experimented with a pilot CBDC program, along with a number of uh, voluntary partner organizations. So by the way, that shows you that a lot of the largest banks and the largest financial institutions are not necessarily opposed to this, because in many ways, they're de facto parts of the government anyways, I would argue. You can't really assume that the taxpayer is going to be compelled to bail you out. You can't have a revolving door between Goldman Sachs and Wall Street regulators and all these things without being de facto a part of the government. So this is not a simple markets versus states things. This is government plus large corporations preying on middle America. And we need to be clear that that's the framing that we have to keep in mind. And when it comes to, man, so many similarities, uh, the person I was just talking to, I mean, we were even, uh, we were talking about antitrust and Twitter and we're talking about the FDA and uh, that the government has their tentacles and so many things where you think that the, the market could stand up against them, but really they can't. The government has this ultimate control, and you talk about the banks not really being against this. How could they be? What what would they even do if they were against this? It's it, they don't want to lose, you know. They don't want to lose that connection to all that money flow they're getting. What are they going to do to be against what the Federal Reserve wants to do? Right? There's no profit to them to standing up and saying no. The system that they have right now is working very well for them. As we saw in 2008, when they're stressed with a financial institution, they get massive bailouts. When there's even the beginnings of stress to the financial institutions, as we saw with COVID, they get emergency programs that basically underwrite all their losses. We actually have some very interesting episodes in recent years of Federal Reserve regulators going to the public and saying, look, I was just in a room with regulators and representatives of private investment banks. And those investment banks were basically giving us our marching orders and all the other regulators were saying, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So we have actual regulatory capture of these public processes by the private entities who are supposed to be disciplined, right? This is not news to anybody who understands public choice economics, right? When you write regulations, they inevitably get captured by special interest groups to benefit existing firms, at the expense of new up-and-coming competitors. And this is what makes our economic system sclerotic. So if you want a lesson in what not to do with financial policy and financial regulation, look at exactly what the United States has done for the past 40 years. You know, I, while you were saying that, I was, I was thinking, well, I'm going to ask, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? And I, I imagined what the response might be. And I'm like, oh, that's why he's writing about going out in the space and trying to find places out there um, because it's highly unlikely we're going to pull this back. But are there any, are, is there anything we can do to, to, to pull some of this back in, in our lifetimes? Yeah. In terms of, uh, in terms of the space angle, jurisdictional competition is good, but there's not much uh, jurisdiction left to flee to these days. <laughs> Pretty much all the real estate here on planet three is monopolized by a badly functioning government. So if we want actual jurisdictional competition, we have to uh, explore the Z axis, so to speak. <laughs> we have to look up, up, up to the stars in terms of fixing what we've got. Yeah. There are reforms that we could actually have. We could have Congress step in and say, look, too big to fail is over. We're basically going to remove the Federal Reserve's last resort lending authority. That would not actually destabilize markets, in my view. That would make markets more stable. It wouldn't prevent the central bank from engaging in ordinary monetary policy if there were an unusual spike in liquidity demand or something. 
but it would stop the Fed from making direct loans because as we've seen, that power has been abused again and again and again. Congress could also specify that Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, which uh, is the section that actually governs last resort lending, they could actually step in and provide a little more guidance about to the kinds of firms that the Fed is allowed to lend to, is allowed to intervene in favor of. And we could bound, uh, we could bind ordinary monetary policy more tightly with a strict monetary policy rule. Basically, it gave the Fed Board of Governors less discretion in terms of their day-to-day operations. So there are reforms. I think that there's going to be an appetite for some of these things in the incoming House of Representatives. Uh, obviously, it's going to be done on arrival in the Senate. So we have to consider what might happen in 2024 if we want to get those proposals passed in law and signed by a president. You talk about the Fed being bound to some some rules. Are there any good books out there that I could find uh, along those lines? I love it when you team me up like that. That's great. <laughs> I just so happen to have written a book called Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. It's published by Cambridge University Press, available on Amazon. There is a low price paperback and there's an even lower price Kindle edition. And so I and my co-authors, Peter Becky at George Mason University and Daniel Smith at Middle Tennessee State University, take a detailed look at monetary policy and say, look, there's really no argument for discretionary monetary policy. On the one hand, rules-based monetary policy just works better, right? So we accept the arguments of advocates of the discretion in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And we say, look, based on the goals that you say you want, strict rules works better. We also get into the ethical arguments, right? We basically say, look, all of our public institutions, at least in theory, are supposed to be democratically accountable and subject to the rule of law. That's what constitutional democracy is all about. And for the most part, we agree that those norms should govern our our public institutions. But for some reason, we haven't applied it to monetary policy. We think that the optimal arrangement for central banking is a bunch of technocrats who have almost unlimited authority to do whatever they want to do. That's not liberal democracy, right? That's not constitutional republicanism. That's expertise run amok, and we can't have that. It doesn't work, and it's democratically unjustifiable. So we make a very strong case for reforming our monetary system in favor of the rule of law in that book. And I would encourage all of your listeners to go out and uh, get a copy. One thing when it comes to the rule of law, and I, and I, haven't, I haven't read the book. I'm going to grab it on Amazon. And, uh, hey, maybe I'll grab the paperback. I'll get you the sign one for me sometime. Something like that. You Happy know. to do it. All right. Um, when, it, when it comes to the rule of law, what I, what I imagine, you would say, well, what happens when we get into an emergency or some type of catastrophe? Well, then at least they need to be able to come in and exercise some discretion. And then when that happens, what you're saying is, well, sure, they can go outside of this, these bounds of the rules whenever something bad enough happens. And so then what you're saying is, well, we can still do whatever we want because we've just said they can exercise discretion whenever they want to. And then you've basically destroyed the whole rule of law idea in the first place. Maybe we see that in other parts of society as well. So how would you make sure uh, that this is what they stuck to? You uh, stumbled upon, even though you haven't read a book, something that we talk about that's very important in the book. If you talk to central bankers, they'll say, well, we're not in favor of discretion. We're in favor of constrained discretion. We want to engage in rule-like behavior most of the time, but we want some wiggle room to do what we need to do when the circumstances are dire. Well, who exactly is constraining your discretion? If it's you yourself, there's no constraints. It's just another kind of discretion, right? The rules have to actually bind in order for them to be actual rules. And we even have a chapter in the book specifically on financial crises, this idea that the potential meltdown of the financial system 
justifies deviating from rule-like behavior to save the financial system. And we say, no, it doesn't. Financial crises actually strengthen the case for rules. Because in an incipient financial panic, what you need most to stabilize markets is predictability and stability. Look at what happened back in 2008, right? All the uncertainty about whether Lehman gets a bailout and Bear Stearns doesn't, right? All that stuff about who was going to get bailed out and under what terms. The Federal Reserve was purposefully vague. One, because they are largely flying by the seat of their pants. Two, they wanted to retain as much discretionary authority as possible. And all that uncertainty was terrible for markets. It actually was counterproductive in terms of stabilizing things and keeping them on an even keel. And so what we actually argue for in the book is this idea that as long as we have a Federal Reserve system where the Fed is the monopoly supplier of the most narrow narrow measure of the money supply, what we call the monetary base, they should be limited to providing the market with liquidity, not credit. The Federal Reserve should not be empowered, even under conditions of financial stress, to make any direct loans. The Fed should A, provide the market with liquidity, and B, the market should allocate that liquidity to worthy banks. So banks that have good enough balance sheets, they can get some of that emergency liquidity. Banks that don't, guess what? You have to fail, which is what we need to happen so that we don't continue to have too big to fail institutionalized in our financial system. Because too big to fail just means the taxpayers are forced to cover it. Well, just look at what we're going through right now uh, with no predictability with the Fed. Uh, I trade I trade in the market every day and I know what people are waiting for every day is what is Jerome Powell going to say? What's the interest rate hike going to be? How long are they going to keep these rates where they are right now? Uh, How much are they pulling back? Uh, It's just everyone is just guessing and making bets on what's going to happen. It would be nice if there was just a set out uh, rule structure that that people were going to follow and we weren't doing what we're doing. Of course, right now we're just erasing all of the uh, fake money that was put into the system in the first place uh, right now. Why don't we talk about that for a second? Another piece you had real quick, supply, demand, and inflation. I asked you a little bit about this last time you were on. Um, We talked a bit about Robert Reich. You know, this is all just greedy capitalists. They all decided to raise prices at the same time. Pretty crazy they all decided to lower their prices at the same time, too, when it comes to oil companies. I noticed that. That was nice of them to have that let's all lower our prices at the same time meeting a few months ago, I guess. Um, but anyway, what well, it's, that, it's that time of year, right? So they read <laughs> the Christmas Carol. They, they felt the love of Scrooge reform. And they decided that they were going to go out and do benevolent things to their fellow men, and, which is really the explanation that you need to have if you're assuming that corporate greed and or benevolence has anything to do with global oil prices. Hint, it doesn't. <laughs> we, we thank them for that and their benevolence this year, helping us buy uh, some more Christmas presents or whatever it is that you're buying. But okay, what is it really that caused this inflation? Did we have too many supply constraints or did we have too much demand, artificial demand? Both, but demand is in the driver's seat. So I think the way that you know demand is in the driver's seat is if you look at the supply side of the economy, the real meaning inflation-adjusted growth rate of the economy post-COVID looks to be about half of what it was pre-COVID, right? So it was in the neighborhood of 3% before COVID. It looks around 1.5% right now. Let's assume, just to keep things simple, that that entire drop can be explained by supply-side problems, uh, supply chain issues, productivity slowdowns, things like that. That means at most 1.5% of current inflation is explained by supply-side considerations, Inflation, depending on what metric you're looking at, is between 6 and 7%. Okay, so 1.5% of that is supply-side problems. That's not nothing. 
but neither is it in the driver's seat. Right? We really need to look at the other side of the ledger, all the additional money that was injected by the Federal Reserve to explain surging aggregate demand. So yes, you have way high aggregate demand. Yes, you have flagging aggregate supply. Both of those things by themselves would cause prices to rise faster than they otherwise would. But in terms of magnitudes, I think it makes most sense to say that demand is the leading cause. Supply is playing a supporting role. Yeah, we uh, we always talk. Of course, uh, Charlie and I, the co-hosts, we're not economists, so we just say, you know, what changed is what can people charge for things? What can people pay for things? And in this case, uh, we were all given a lot of extra money. Um, I still have, I mean, they just gave out money. Like they just had so much money. They just needed to give it away to people. I've, I still haven't spent the money that they gave me, but I guess it has uh, led me to be able to pay higher prices for the things that I am buying right now. And that's what people don't realize. Like your, your idea of what you can pay for something goes up when you have more money in your bank account. And, uh, that's something that's hard to explain to a lot of people it's much easier to just say that there's some greedy businessman with a top hat and a cane, a monocle, probably. He's probably smoking a cigar, drinking a brandy, and he just wanted to make some some more money to screw your family over, right? Like, how do we come up with an easy explanation that's like that guy, the Monopoly man? Greed is simple, but I'm not sure that it's more simple than the money supply, because it's actually pretty straightforward to draw a link between, look, if all prices are going up, if prices in all markets are going up, there must be something common to all markets that's explaining this. What's common to all markets, right? No matter what you're buying, no matter what you're selling, what's common in those transactions? You're using money. Maybe you're using physical currency. Maybe you're using bank-issued money. Maybe you're using Bitcoin or whatever, right? But the bottom line is, as long as you have this medium of exchange, this changing hands the supply of that medium of exchange is going to determine the general level of prices, right? So we're not talking about the relative price of cars to ice cream cones or anything like that, right? That's a microeconomic question. What we're looking at is how all prices at once are going up, which means the dollar is depreciating in terms of its purchasing power. The straightforward explanation for that is you have comparatively abundant money chasing comparatively scarce goods and services. Okay, chicken or the egg here and i i might have asked you about this uh, i can't remember exactly who it was but you know the fed maybe it's not all their fault because they didn't choose to shut down the economy and and destroy the supply side they had to come in and do what they did you know that uh we can't really blame them if not the whole thing would have collapsed right let's assume that that were true but then also would the government have been able to do what they did if they didn't know that they had this backstop uh, money printing machine that could pick up for all of their mistakes. Okay, chicken, chicken or the egg scenario here, whose fault is it? The way I look at it is this. As you said, the federal government understood that the Fed would not be willing to permit stress or panic in the market for government debt. Because the market for government debt, especially treasuries, is widely viewed as the backstop of the global financial system. And if that thing freezes up, things are going to get really, really bad. That basically means that Uncle Sam can borrow knowing that there's going to be a healthy appetite for its bonds on the secondary market because the Fed is going to just gobble them up. Let's tie it back into what we said before, right? According to the CPI, inflation right now is about 7% per year. 1.5% of that roughly is supply-side inflation. So subtract that 1.5%, you're left with 5.5% inflation. The Fed's target for inflation is 2% per year. 
right? So even if you completely rule out the supply side stuff, which the Fed has no control over, inflation is still running more than twice as high as the Federal Reserve's own official target. That's a demand side problem, which means a money supply problem. That is absolutely the Fed's fault. And as we uh, talked about last time, they really need to get it down below 2%. And I keep watching CNBC and I keep waiting for someone to say, well, the Fed's target of two, well, actually they need to go down to 1.5 or 1.2 for a while to get back in line with their average. I haven't heard anyone say that yet. And I, I don't know if they plan on I doing just- it or not. I suspect you and I are going to be waiting for quite some time for anybody to say that, let alone anyone to do that. As we're learning the hard way, the target is asymmetric. They're willing to tolerate higher than 2% inflation because it's easy sometimes, but by no means are they willing to uh, create lower than 2% inflation to make it average out to two. So that basically tells you that their own self-adopted target is not credible. Markets don't believe them and and they shouldn't believe them. I've only got, we've only got a couple minutes here, but I don't know if you heard in the last, uh, the last Fed meeting, someone asked Powell about increasing their target rate uh, to, I don't know if someone mentioned three or I saw, I saw someone mention three on a popular Twitter post somewhere. Um, I've seen a bigger push for that. Why go the two? We can handle three, right? Is there a big, uh, what, what do you think they're going to do? For all I give him a hard time, I think that Powell is actually concerned with restoring the Fed's credibility that has been lost in recent years. So I think that he's going to be a strong advocate of getting back down to two as fast as political constraints allow him. I don't think that there's going to be much appetite among the major players on the board of governors for switching the inflation target to 3%. That's usually the preferred policy program of people who are still stuck in, you know, old school, last generation Keynesian economics who don't actually understand how markets work. Well, we will, uh, we'll leave that to them then. Uh, listen, as always, I really, really enjoy this conversation. I am going to ask you about the expanse. It's okay. Next time you come on, if you fail the test, that's fine. Uh, that that's totally fine. You don't have to watch it. You're welcome to fail the test when you come back and that's on you. It'll be recorded and put out to everyone. So, you know, you make your the own world choices. Will know. You're they, giving me a pretty good incentive here. Everyone, everyone's going to know. All right. Where can everyone go to keep track of what you're doing? My website, www.awsalter.com. I have all my writing there, my scholarly articles, my popular writing and my media appearances. I am occasionally on Facebook, although I'm trying to minimize my Facebook time until after Christmas, and I am not on Twitter anymore because I just don't need that drama in my life. Both smart decisions, and um, I wish I had your strength. All right. (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for your time today. It was my pleasure. Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. All right. You too. Thanks.